Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 193. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. In 1991's The Silence of the Lambs, the production received full cooperation from the FBI as they saw it as a potential recruiting tool to hire more female agents. This one is so much fun. There's a brand new, fantastic, practical effects-laden horror adventure that at time of release is out in select theaters, drive-ins, on-demand, and digital January 22nd. It's called PG Psycho Goreman. You're joined by not one, but two guests. Writer, director, special effects artist Steve Kostansky and star Nita Jose Hanna. Hear all about Steve's journey into filmmaking from being a teenager, taking Dick Smith courses to working on Guillermo del Toro's films, the new It, the lunacy of being a part of the insanely creative Astron 6 Collective, up to helming the new Day of the Dead series and creating the visual eye candy that is Psycho Gorman. Then, 13-year-old Nita Jose lets you in on bringing one of the most unforgettable characters in horror cinema to life, Mimi, working on her first feature film, and so much more. If you like this show, go back and check out episode 183 with Tony Gardner and episode 131 with Greg Nicotero. Episode 193 starts now. They're coming to get you, Barbara. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for ah! Horror Homework. All right, we're going to go around the room and around the world wide web. All the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown highlight a horror flick to each other and yes. possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit starting as usual with leo what are you assigning this week wait wait, wait. what i had a nightmare Uh-oh. the other day that leo moved Uh-oh. and he moved to manhattan beach and i was like what are we gonna do we always scream eagle rock and you're like well we're gonna scream manhattan yeah beach. hell yeah we are no, it's not the same. And then I try to convince you not to move. And you're like, I have to. <laughs> and you're like, you don't want me to move just because of the show? And I was like, yeah. And I don't know why you were moving to Manhattan Beach, but sounds well, nice. Well, I do know a girl in Manhattan Beach, so... Are you guys moving in together? <clears throat> no comment. Broadcasting from <laughs> Coastal South Bay, Manhattan Beach! Oh my gosh, you're alone on that one. Sounds like an HGTV like, call out. Right. <laughs> Have you guys seen this little movie on Shudder called Scare Me? Nope. Heard of it? Ah, Have not seen it yet. Yes. It's a fun one. It's something different, something unique. Did not know anything about it when in cold. I, I, you know, I heard people talking about it online. I'm like, I, I gotta watch this. I gotta check it out. See what it's about. Scare Me 2020 release, written and directed by Josh Rubin. But not only only that, he stars in it. Also stars Aya Cash as Fanny, as the two main characters. Now this movie made me laugh because it kicks off with like 
the Uber driver from hell. And I know, Lauren, you can relate to that. Oh, God. <laughs> Me and my Uber experiences. I need to write a book. I don't have many, but <laughs> the ones that I have, they all stand out. It's like this one driver that like won't shut up. And the poor guy's trying to get some sleep in the backseat, you know? Yeah. And and she's just she's just like, hey, I'm a, you know, what do you do? And he keeps waking up and he's like, oh, my God, kill me. You know, he's like, just just drive. You know? <laughs> but I was laughing. I thought of you, Lauren, right away. I'm like, that, that, uh, that's got to be Lauren right it there. It would happen to me for sure. <laughs> but the simple premise of this movie is during a power outage, two strangers tell scary stories. Like, is it an anthology? I uh, don't want to reveal that. Quite All right. Yet, interesting. But this is how the story unfolds. Okay. So during a power outage, two strangers tell scary stories, and and you know the more Fred, who meets Fanny, commit to their tales, the more the stories come to life in the dark of a cabin. The horrors of reality manifest when Fred confronts his ultimate fear. Fanny may be the better storyteller. Who knows? Maybe it's Fred. Maybe not. This movie kicks off with that he gets dropped off at the cabin, and soon enough he's going on a walk. He runs into Fanny. She's kind of a She's kind of a jerk to him. She's kind of like a pretentious writer. She's like, oh, I'm better than you. you know, whatever. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to. She thinks he's hitting on her, but he kind of isn't. You know, he's just kind of like being friendly. Once the power outage hits, like she comes over, scares the shit out of him. Then they spend like the night in his cabin with the idea of, OK, power's out. None of us can write there. You know, we're both writers and and we can't do nothing about it. So tell me a story. Tell me a scary story. Scare me. That's where the story starts to unfold. So from here on out, you got to look for some good jump scares, a lot of fun storytelling, a lot of reveals. I thought it was really cool how a simple idea just unfolded into like, hey, you know, I did not, I did not see that coming. You know, it's like, oh, we have this, we have that. Those surprises along the way. So without revealing anything, I suggest you just go in blind, go on, go in and watch it. It's a, a Shutter exclusive, so check it out on Shutter. Enjoy it as much as I did. Lauren and I checked out an incredible film that opened on Halloween night, 2008. Directed by Toby Wilkins, who followed this up with The Grudge 3 in 2009. This movie stars Shea Wiggum, Paula Costanzo from the great Josie and the Pussycats. One of the best musical movies ever made. You love that movie. I will take that to the grave. I'm sure you will. If you have not seen Josie and the Pussycats, look it up. It's amazing. And then come back. And we'll talk all about it. <laughs> and Jill Wagner's also in this. It is called Splinter. Woo! I heard of it. Never saw this. I never saw this. Oh, man. This is a great one. Lauren brought this one up. I'd never even heard of it. So it won six awards at Scream Fest that year, including Best Editing, Best Score, Best Special Effects, Best Makeup, Best Directing, and Best Picture. That's a lot of bets. It is. It is. Uh, The plot is super fun and simple. It goes by really fast. It's just about an hour and a half. It almost qualifies for a Sweet Scream Award. It's about four minutes too long for a Sweet Scream Award. Oh my gosh. Are you really going to fault it for the four minutes? No, I'll give it a Sweet Scream Award. (laughs) There There it is. is. There it is. Yeah! We owe the Sweet Scream! Oh my gosh. (laughs) Our poor listener. Anyways, (laughs) Splinter... Yes, that, 
that one listener. Splinter is so fun and it's like super fast paced. The movie centers around this parasite that comes in the form of splinters. The effects are so bloody and like gory and brilliant. And they were actually done by Quantum Creations, who are the team behind projects like Tron Legacy, Sucker Punch, Contagion and the House of the Devil. Bodies get torn apart, limbs go backwards. It's a party. Seriously. Production design by Jennifer Spence, who works on like literally everything cool. Uh, Latest that she's going to be working on is The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. She did Annabelle Comes Home, which we all love. The Nun, which is amazing. Annabelle Creation, Lights Out, Insidious 2 and 3, Paranormal Activities 2 through 4. The list goes on, guys. So it looks and feels isolated, immersive, and is terrorizing the performances here are completely believable and very intense we just absolutely loved it and i find it so cathartic to watch movies like this with themes that harken back to films like night of the living dead and dawn of the dead where you're trapped in what seems like an insurmountable situation with a very small group of really fleshed out characters your brain gets almost tricked into feeling like This stuff is all happening to you and you end up talking to the screen and feel super involved and attached. Splinter is just one of those movies that does this at such a brisk pace and with so much incredible effects work that we are instantly won over. This one completely skipped by me until now. As I said, Lauren found this one and we were absolutely delighted to share it with you. So check it out this weekend and let us know what you thought. This is Steve Kostansky. Frig off and listen to the Boo Crew. Many moons ago, a nameless evil was imprisoned in a place far beyond reach. Hurry up! If he were ever to be released, it would spell certain doom for all existence. Is that fear I smell? Your planet will be torn to pieces, and I will take your screams as I... Is this yours? Oh... Oh my god. The gem of Paraxidike. Whoever wields it is able to command me. Go over there. Ah. And wait for us to come back in the morning. You will suffer an eternity for this. Bye! Mom, Dad, I watch them meet Psycho Gorman, or PG for short. I will bathe in your blood. Don't worry. Be worried. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a seven-time award-winning filmmaker and special effects master. He has been behind the gore, creatures, and makeup for projects like Pacific Rim, Todd, and the Book of Pure Evil, Resident Evil, Silent Hill, the Emmy-nominated Hannibal TV series, Eli Roth's Clown, Crimson Peak, Suicide Squad, It, and so many more. He's done the same for his own jaw-dropping catalog that includes the incredible stop-animation short Fantasy Beyond, and then as a part of the infamous Winnipeg Collective, Astron 6, Laser Ghosts 2, Return to Laser Cove, Boston Underground winner and official selection at Fantastic Fest, Fantasia, Toronto After Dark, and many more. 2011's feature, Manborg. He followed that up with writing and directing Bloodbath Father's Day for Troma, a segment in ABC's of Death 2. The three-time award-winning and acclaimed film The Void in 2016. Leprechaun Returns in 2018 for sci-fi. 
where he is currently at the helm of the forthcoming TV series based on Romero's Day of the Dead. This guy is so fucking creative. Watching his films is like mainlining the entire contents of a long shuttered video mart through the back of a convenience store. The career he has built and the content he puts out there is so inspiring, fun, and pure splatterpunk. His new film, PG, Psycho Goreman, is available in theaters on demand and digital January 22nd and is one of the coolest things we've ever seen. We are honored to welcome the amazing Stephen Kostansky. Yeah! Yeah! Wow, thank you for that crazy intro. Right. You really, really hyped people up for me. That was, that was a long list of credits and awards I wasn't even aware of. There you go, man. Well, holy shit, dude. Thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us today. Your stuff absolutely blows our minds. And this new one takes everything to the next level. There really is not anything like it. So congratulations on the film, first of all. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So we want to start briefly by taking a look at the films that created you. What was your first impactful experience with horror cinema? I mean, I don't know if I would call it a horror movie per se, but I have very vivid memories of my parents renting Terminator 2 when I was way too young and uh, watching that film and being as a kid, a little bit traumatized, but a little bit thrilled by it at the same time. You know, as a kid, it's a lot of conflicting emotions watching you know, R-rated movies that you shouldn't be watching because you're seeing a lot of exciting things like robots and lasers, but then you're also seeing cops getting impaled through the eyes and getting their knees shot out. (laughs) So as a kid, it was very enticing and really sparked my imagination, but also like freaked the hell out of me. Uh, So I had a lot of experiences like that. I really was not a uh, horror movie kid growing up. I couldn't even handle going into the horror section. I distinctly remember at the Video King down the street from my parents' house, there was a standee of Freddy Krueger from Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which, if you remember, the marketing for that movie gave him the, like, robot glove. Yeah, that's right. uh, That's only seen at the beginning of the movie, but not through the rest of it. And so it was a standee of Freddy in his trench coat with this robot glove. And, like, I was scared to go into the horror section because that standee was guarding it. And I remember being so conflicted because I was horrified because it's Freddy Krueger. And obviously as a kid, you're terrified of this guy, but also being like, Oh, but he's got like a robot hand for some reason. And just like my brain didn't know how to process that because it was like, I think that hand is kind of cool, but I'm also horrified of this burnt monster man. So it's like having nightmares, but also being like creatively enticed by it and being like, I want to know more about this guy, but I also don't want to go anywhere near this guy. So I feel like that was, most of my childhood was like avoiding the horror section, but also being a little bit like curious by it and like wanting to know more, but not having the courage to know more. And so finally, when I rented army of darkness, because I saw an ad for it in a comic book and thought, Oh, this looks like a fun Ray Harryhausen adventure. Watching that was my first taste of the quote unquote horror genre. And I ended up working my way backwards through the evil dead movies. I was I believe 12 or 13 at the time. And that was it that pushed me over the edge. And I finally like got over my fear of horror movies and realized like, oh, there's such a wealth of creativity and ingenuity in these movies and their effects and just their camera work and the stories that they're telling were so interesting and crazy to me that I just started like consuming every horror franchise I could find. Like I worked my way through Phantasm, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th. 
and yeah, from that point on, I was just completely enamored with the genre and I have not looked back since. When you mentioned those films and, and going off and, and discovering all these other horror films and things just ripe with like you're talking about Harryhausen and stop motion effects and Sam Raimi doing that on a lot of the Evil Dead movies as well. Was there a certain catalog of films that got you interested in the art of special effects in particular and that propelled you to go and start doing that on your own? Before I got into horror, I was into definitely into like science fiction and fantasy. Like I was a big Star Wars kid. So like, you know, Jabba's Palace and Return of the Jedi was everything to me, where it was just like all these assortments of weird monsters and things. And so when I got into horror, I realized like, oh, this like there's like definite crossover here. Like there's monsters in horror films as well. And I realized like all these genres that I love, like the consistent thing is like effects. And so I I realized like, oh, well, like that's if there's going to be a stream like a department in filmmaking that I want to get into, it should probably be this. And uh, to go back to Army of Darkness again, my parents bought it for me on the Anchor Bay VHS that came out in the late 90s. And so I watched that. And at the end of it, it had all the bonus features like they used to do. Anchor Bay used to do that with their VHS tapes. They put like making ofs and stuff after the movie. And so that was the first time I saw K&B effects. And I saw them building the like bog witch for army of darkness. And I remember seeing that and it kind of pulled back the curtain on the movie industry because I saw these like guys in heavy metal shirts, like goofing around in an effect shop, like like slinging latex around. And I remember thinking like, well, damn it. Those just look like normal dudes. Like I want to hang out with those guys and just make monsters all day. Like if they can do it, I can do it. So that that was a bit of a tipping point as well, because I realized like, oh, it's like this is a very accessible thing if you're passionate and creative and like have the skills to do it. So I started kind of working in makeup effects, like making my own gags and stuff for my own little short films that I was making and also doing stop motion on the side because I'd always been fascinated by that. So that was kind of my segue into actually making my own movies which then led me to making my own effects for my own movies. And it just built from there. I took the Dick Smith prosthetics course. Dick Smith, of course, the godfather of makeup effects who did like the effects for the exorcist and the godfather. And so I took his course where he, I would correspond with him. So I would sculpt makeups at home and I'd send him photos and then he'd call me and tell me how much, how much work those, those makeups needed and how much they sucked and how I needed to get better. And so that was my like kind of as close to formal training as I got in makeup effects. And while that was happening, I was still making my own films. I met the Astron six guys and we started making short films where I started doing effects for their films as well as my own films. And so, yeah, like while I was working, doing makeup effects, like as a job, I was also doing makeup effects as a hobby for my fellow filmmakers that I was working with making short films. And so I just kept going back and forth between the two while I lived in Winnipeg. And then I moved to Toronto 2010. And that's when I started really working professionally in film. I got a job on Silent Hill, Silent Hill 2 and uh, Resident Evil 5 for Paul Jones, working at Paul Jones effects. And so those were like, really big milestones for me because I'm a big fan of those games. And so the idea of being able to like work on those properties kind of justified me wasting countless hours 
playing them as a kid. So yeah, so from that point on, I basically just bounced from one show to the next while making my own stuff kind of in between and on the side when I had a spare minute. And yeah, that's pretty much been my career ever since is just bouncing between whatever's happening in town, like doing effects, sculpting, painting, applying makeups, or directing my own projects and just kind of going wherever the wind takes me. That's incredible. How, how old were you? Uh, I'm curious when you started taking those Dick Smith courses. I ordered the basic course when I was 17. I was still in high school when I was doing it. And then I was 18 when I ordered the professional course and I was actually doing it while I was in university. Uh, I was at the University of Manitoba taking English and I would be sitting in class with my textbook open, but then I would have my Dick Smith course kind of like <laughs> squeezed into my textbook. <laughs> so I'd be sitting there reading about making molds and like sculpting prosthetics when I was supposed to be like learning about, I don't know, American literature or something, you know, some poem from the 1800s, but I'm reading about uh, Dick Smith's like slit throat gag that he did on the Godfather part three. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So what would <laughs> nice. you say would be your very first professional job doing makeup effects? My first real job was working for Doug Morrow, who is the only guy who does prosthetics in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He uh, has worked on all the big movies that have shot out there. And basically, I just kept calling him and hounding him and being like, I need to I need to work for you. Like, I love doing this. And eventually he caved in and let me come work in his little basement shop. And so my first real job was making molds and helping with some gags for a little known horror movie, straight to video horror movie from 2000, I guess it came out 2005 called Tamara. Yeah, we love that uh, movie. We actually saw it in the theater yes. out here in, in LA, actually. Yeah. Wait, that played in the, that played in the theater? Yeah, it had that. a really limited theatrical run. Yeah. Was it, Je- uh, uh, was it Je- what's her name? Jenna? Jenna Dewan, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, and it was written by uh, uh, Jeffrey so- Reddick, too, uh, the Final Destination franchise creator. That was a really good movie. Yes. It was really yeah. fun. I believe it says that on the dvd box of course i would (laughs) but uh yeah i helped out on that i didn't go to set or anything i was just in his in doug's shop like molding prosthetics and helping cast pieces and i believe there's a gag where somebody's there's like worms crawling under somebody's skin in their arm and so i kind of was tasked with figuring that gag out but yeah i was what like just turned 18 and that was like my my first big job was doing that. And so, yeah, I helped Doug on a bunch of shows that Philip Seymour Hoffman movie Capote. He did after that. I, so I did a bunch of like lab tech work for him on that. Yeah. And what an Oscar. Uh, and then I got hired by Todd masters who I'm still working for now on a movie called haunting in Connecticut. So I worked on set for that. There's a bunch of ghost makeups in that, that I helped apply. And then I ended up working for him again in 2010. I sort of stumbled into being the effects key on set for the movie, the divide, the, uh, Xavier Jean, the French filmmaker who did, did the first version of Hitman based off the video game. Mm -hmm. But it was that movie where, yeah, a bunch of people are trapped in an underground bunker. It's got Michael Bean in it. Yeah. Very low budget affair, all shot in studio. And so I was like, on set pretty much every day for that show. And they would just make up stuff on the day and be like, Hey, can you like cave in this guy's head? We need it in like two hours. So I would just kind of like 
get cotton and latex and just mash together whatever I could come up with in a limited period of time. I was just totally left to my own devices, which was crazy to that, think at the time. Like, so if somebody cool. did that to me now, I would have a panic attack. Yeah. At the time, I was like, all right, whatever, that's fine. Wow. Um, that was and, my, my, some of my earliest experiences working in prosthetics. And then you've parlayed that into, I mean, you've worked on some massive stuff like Del Toro films, like Crimson Peak, for instance. Uh, what is that experience like? Well, I mean, on these shows, I get hired like to work as a technician. So I work in the shop making molds and running foam. So I work under like, like all the big companies in Toronto, like, like I said, Paul Jones effects. Mm-hmm. I work for mind warp effects was the company I worked for doing Pacific rim and Hannibal. But then for crimson peak, I worked for DDT, which is the Spanish company that did, they did the effects for pans Labyrinth. Yeah. And so yeah, it's David and Monsi run that company and they were very nice to let me come on board their team. And I, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience on, on big shows like that. You have a lot of time to do your, do your work, which I'm not used to. So it was uh, long hours running lots of red foam latex for those red ghosts and uh, making molds and stuff. But it was, it was a really good experience. And I, I learned a lot working on those big shows. I mean, it's, it, it really is, it becomes like, factory work at that point because it's so big sure like it's that's why i like jumping between stuff like that and lower budget stuff where i can get my hands dirty a little bit more and like innovate a little bit more but yeah it's nice to go back and forth and work with big crews on these these bigger projects and you always learn interesting techniques from people like half the job is really just navigating all the personalities you're around but i've uh you know, I've, I've made a lot of really good friendships since I've been out here in Toronto working in effects and learned a lot from some of the best people in the industry. So I'm, I'm really fortunate. Oh, that's uh, incredible that man. experience. Well, we could talk about your work in effects forever and we'll get into it a yeah. bit more with, with PG yeah. here. Now we're going to eat up all our time. Just, just yapping with you about your history, but Leo kick it off with, uh, with a question about PG, this amazing film. Yeah. Man. Watching this film, I get tidbits of the great, Horror films and characters like Pinhead of Hellraiser and Nyx of Lord of Illusions uh, meets the Power Rangers. What uh, what inspired the look and personality of Psycho Gorman? Well, it's, it's funny that you bring up Clive Barker like that because honestly, I came up for the over the overarching plot of PG. I came up with while watching Rawhead Rex for the first time. I had not seen. I had just finished on Leprechaun Returns, and so I was watching Rawhead Rex. I ordered that gorgeous Blu-ray that has that nice painted cover. I don't remember who released it, but it was a really nice edition of the movie. So I was like, I'm going to finally give this movie a shot. And as I was watching it, I was getting real bored because, you know, not to throw shade on Rawhead Rex, but I, I just was not feeling it. And so I started ruminating. I'm like, well, okay, there's this premise of like a, this ancient god monster that's being resurrected and like like what would i do with that character and i started thinking like well what would happen if like kids got control of this thing and like what would they do with him and what if this creature never became good that was like one of the big (laughs) selling points for me is like it would be fun to tell a story where these characters don't learn a lesson and there's no (laughs) stupid morality tale behind it it's like what if (laughs) this evil monster stayed evil from beginning to end and if anything just gets more delusional by the end of the movie and so that was a real like 
kicking off point for coming up with this story. And really, once I had that core idea, it was easy to just hang the million other ideas I've been sitting on throughout my career because I have so many half thought up ideas that just fit so perfectly into this thing because I had this easy through line of like, you know, evil monster warlord man versus little girl. That's kind of a maniac. And like, (laughs) once I kind of figured out that core relationship, it was easy to hang these other random ideas off of it. So yeah, I mean like something like PG playing the drums was an image I'd had in my head for years and I just didn't know what to do with. Like, I love the idea of a monster, like a kid's having a band, but there's a monster in the band too. And so this was, this movie was my way of integrating all those random ideas that I've been sitting on over the years into one movie and just jam it full of as much random shit as possible. So yeah, that's where the movie came from. One of the centerpieces is this brilliant creature suit that got, it has its own personality It bleeds, it lights up in certain places and at certain moments, and it encases this massively amazing gemstone that I want to own one day. (laughs) Can you tell us about creating the suit? Like the suit for PG himself? Yeah. Yeah. I guess my design approach for PG was what is something that if I saw a toy, like an action figure version of it, if I saw it when I was 10 years old, like hanging in a Walmart or whatever, like what would I go nuts for? What would I want to immediately throw cash down to buy? And so it was a case of just like combining all these elements together to try and make the like, like simplest, but flashiest version of like the ultimate villain, I guess is possible. And kind of combining elements of like Skeletor and Megatron and uh, even like going more obscure with like Micronauts, like I love the design of Baron Karza in the Micronauts universe, or even Molasar from The Keep, I think is a great design. So I want to just kind of pull from all these different places. There's like a tiny bit of venom in them a little bit. Just all these, all these different like, like evil characters and just mashing them together into one monster that Kid Steve would go nuts for. And so, yeah, that's why he's got like, like the glowy cracks in him, like the pink, the hot pink cracks that light up. Like that was a thing that I figured like from a distance, if I saw that in a toy aisle as a kid, I'd be like, Ooh, like that's catching my eye. What's up with that guy? Like, that would be such a gimmick that a toy would have that you put it under like UV light or, or it would glow in the dark <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I have that vibe. And I also, with all the creature designs, I want to approach it the way that you like I imagine they approach like masters of the universe, the movie where it's like, you're taking cartoon characters and action figure characters, and you're trying to translate them to real life. And like, how, how do you make that make sense? And so I kind of deliberately designed some of the things to be a little clunky. So it feels like a boardroom of people had to like, try and make sense of a thing that you can't make sense of like a thing that, maybe makes sense in an action figure, but doesn't make sense in real life. <laughs> right. I that feeling. That's a great way uh, to describe it. <laughs> because it's a thing I'm fascinated by is like this, this translating between media, especially like stuff that's going from like action figures, toys or comic books and being translated to the big screen. Like I feel like pre Marvel movie era, like people didn't really know how to do that stuff. And so like, 
it, it's always fascinating to me watching these movies that don't don't work like something like masters of the universe that like doesn't quite work, but it still is really charming to me because they tried and made some like awful decisions that lead to some really like, like things that have a lot of personality. So that's what I tried to do with this film was like try and give them the same kind of personality where it's like not entirely realistic or convincing, but there's like something engaging about it nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that makes it feel like some weird fever dream. Like it's just like like I said, like at the top, like mainlining pure creativity. You're seeing these things come to life that don't make sense, yeah. but they're sitting in front of you like that Templar scene with that strange like animatronic Geiger type robot person who looks like he's, you know, an automaton. And then there's the guy with who's a brain and a glass helmet, basically, and then Pandora looks like a transformer you know everybody's so unique and crazy was there any of them that were particularly like impossible to actually like make in a physical form or particularly challenging i mean they all had their own challenges and none of them were designed to be comfortable which is a thing (laughs) i i feel like i owe many apologies to the uh, stunt crew and the actors forced into these suits like Nobody had a good time in these suits. Uh, I feel bad. Matt, who played PG, you know, he was in that suit every day and it was hell for him. Like people take for granted how taxing creature acting is, but it's really tough on the body. And if you don't have the stamina for it and you don't pace yourself throughout the day, like it will murder you. And so he, he went through a bit of a trial by fire with this movie, figuring out what it takes to be a creature performer. But I mean, in the end, he survived. Uh, he's scarred for life, but he survived. And also, Kristen, who played Pandora, like she had it especially tough because that suit was designed. It was almost like it was designed to be uncomfortable, and sure. that like she's basically blind. Like there's the tiniest slits for her eyes to see through, and the wings on her back were so heavy because they were, you know, they had lights and like something like sixteen batteries. Like oh my double God. A batteries in the back. <laughs> so all these costumes were actually lighting up, like even even PGs, were they all actually practically lighting up and things? Or were any of that after effect? Well, pa- Pandora's suit, those were practical lights on set. PG's suit was UV paint that I painted in the cracks, and then we would hit it with a UV light to <sighs> make the cracks pop. That's insane. Wow. What about what about the group of creatures from Gygax so they meet in the woods. I, I can't decide who I love more in that scene. Either the Witchmaster or Cassius 3000 or maybe the guy who's just the bucket of body parts. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. was my favorite. Right. Yeah. Uh, so every, everybody loves Death Trapper, it seems. Yeah, it's. I wanted that to feel like the like the bounty hunter scene in Empire Strikes Back where you're seeing, you know, like Boba Fett and Forlom and Dengar and Zuckus and like IG-88, you're seeing all these guys in a line and you're just like, I want to know what those guys deal is like, but you only see them for 20 seconds. So I wanted this scene to really be like, you're getting like a piece of PG's history and it's like just enough to be satisfying, but you still want more. Like I always wanted every scene with the creatures to leave you wanting to know more about them, like what their deal is. And, uh, like, you know, spark people's imagination a little bit, get them talking about like, well, like what is Cassius 3000's problem? <laughs> like why, why did right. PG, why did PG single him out as being the guy that yeah. he doesn't trust? And why does he have a bird, a robot bird on his shoulder? Like I want, these are the questions I think people need to be asking yes. uh, with right. this movie. 
And is there so? Do you have like a whole franchise plan for this? We need to see more of these guys. This is the impression I'm getting is that I, I better jump on subsequent versions of PG. And I do. I have a plan. I am working on a, some kind of follow up. I can't really get into what that will be yet because it's so early. I mean, we kind of have to wait to see how the movie does. It's gonna do fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hope yeah. so. Because yeah. yeah, I've I've already like the distributors and everybody is they're all excited for follow-ups to this and they see the potential so i've started slowly kind of hashing out what that might be but yeah i there will be future versions of pg future adventures we'll see what exactly that entails but there'll be something something will happen there has to be more we have to get somehow we have to get to pg-13 whether (laughs) it's 11 yes whether it's 11 11 more movies or 11 episodes of a tv show that get us to the 13th movie we'll see how did you do the the warrior's death incredible scenes that happens like twice in the movie or so two or three times yeah well it was a thing that on paper it seems simple and we built the gag one way and we actually shot it like shot a completely different version that on the day was disappointing and made me realize like, Oh, this is actually a more complex gag than I thought it was going to be is, you know, we, we tried to work it into principal photography. There's so much stuff going on it. That gag just kind of got pushed aside. And I don't think I gave it the attention it, it really needed. So we shot it this one way. It was unsatisfying. So then like, it's like a month before we were supposed to deliver the finished movie. Like we were supposed to have locked picture and everything. I went back to the shop like right after Christmas and rebuilt the whole, like I built this whole puppet contraption so PG could properly perform the warrior's death. I don't want to spoil what it is because I feel like listeners need to experience it for themselves. But yeah, I basically rebuilt the gag from scratch and then we shot it in a friend's backyard uh, and then dropped it into the movie. (laughs) And yeah, so it just, it needed to be bigger and better. And I knew that like that needed to be a showstopper moment because when it comes back later, like for that callback joke to work, you need to have the memory of what that was burned in your brain. So I knew that it needed to be a big gag and it needed to deliver. So yeah, I ended up spending a few late nights rebuilding it so we could reshoot it. We are big lovers of props. So this movie had such eye candy. I mean, the gem and just the costuming and everything. Did you keep anything from the production? Oh yeah, we got a whole bunch of stuff. I got stuff lying around here. What? Uh, I've got one of the Templar helmets behind me. Oh no! Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Oh nice. I've got a bunch of it uh, sitting in storage right now. I mean, unfortunately, when stuff's made out of latex and silicone like that, that eventually degrades. But, uh, you know, I, I do think there are lots of things that can survive. And I have most of the molds for everything, too. So I could always just run more stuff. Like, why you guys are looking for a prop? Uh, to- Hell yeah, yeah, man. You got anything you want to part with? We're down. That'd be amazing. Seriously. I mean, yeah. If you want this Templar helmet, you can have it. Just wow. give me an address. Done. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. This is the greatest interview ever. <laughs> wanted to ask you first. Uh, I know Leo, Leo has, has a bunch of questions, too, but wanted to just ask you about nailing the voice for PG. It is terrifying. Whatever effects you got that thing going through. Was that a long, hard, arduous process of finally deciding on the perfect voice and voice actor for PG? Well, it's funny because when we did our audition process for PG, 
this guy, Steve Vlahos auditioned to play him to play the physical form of PG. Cause we cast it in two pieces. Like, you know, it was the physicality who ended up being Matthew Nineveh and then the voice. Cause I wanted them to be separate. Cause I felt like that'd make it more of a Saturday morning cartoon vibe if he's dubbed by a different actor. And so the Steve Lajos guy auditioned and I didn't think he had the physicality. Like he just wasn't big enough. He wasn't imposing enough, but he had the perfect voice. And so even when we were considering like bigger name actors, like, like considering going after like real names to play PG, I kept going back to Steve and like listening to his audition tape. And I just loved his voice. It was such a perfect fit. And it like, I, and I like that he's his own, character like it doesn't feel like you we got somebody to play pg like a recognizable voice it's like he feels wholly unique yeah. to who pg is and so yeah I, I convinced the producers like we gotta go with this guy because he just feels right to me and i even took his audition and laid it over some shots of pg that we had as like a bit of a demo reel to show them like look this works it's great and uh so yeah they were convinced when they saw that that it that it fit and has that has that Saturday morning vibe that he needed to have that Saturday morning villain, like a, like a Skeletor or a Cobra commander or, or a, uh, was it megabyte from reboot? Like yeah. those kinds of voices. Yeah. <laughs> or what was that? Show? I don't know if like I grew up in Canada, I'm Canadian and uh, right there was a show called power Rangers that used to be able to shoot and interact well, with the TV that kind of had that feel well, to it a little you're, bit. Too. You're talking about captain power. Yes. Power yes. Rangers. That's captain, right. Captain power. Captain power. Yes, I love Captain Power, of course. That show was great. I also grew up on it. And yes, you could get the toys and there was the ship that you could shoot at the screen. Yes, from consumers points. distributing. I remember when we used to be able to order that. Yeah, and it would just like things would light up on the screen. I never, my parents could never afford to buy me the actual interactive gun. So I just pretended. But oh, yeah. yeah, I yeah. couldn't get it either. I, I got a bunch of Captain Power toys like at garage sales way after the fact. But yeah, I couldn't afford the toy at the time. But anytime that show was on, I was completely enamored with it i'd say that's that's another inspiration as well there's definitely a bit of that influence in pg yeah that's amazing all right leo cut cut in man i'm so sorry yeah <laughs> no worries the, uh, the archduke of nightmares and i'm talking about mimi here played by nita <laughs> jose Hanna. her character is quite the fun bully and uh, crazy badass of a little sister was she based on anyone you know well she's kind of just generally based on my experiences with kids like like as recently a lot of coworkers, like i've met their kids at various events and stuff and talked to them and i've been noticing like kids their personalities i don't feel like they're properly represented on screen like I, i've been calling it the harry potter problem where it's like <laughs> kids are always presented as being these like kind of wide-eyed innocent characters where stuff just happens to them and they don't have a ton of agency. And so I like the idea of a kid being more true to life where when you're a kid before you hit puberty and have all the like anxiety and self doubt that comes with that, you're a little terror. Like you're the master of your universe. And I wanted to convey that with Mimi and have a kid that is totally like, like commanding every situation. Like she controls everything that's going on. Like in the way that PG is the overlord of the universe, Mimi is the overlord of the Helen Beck house and the neighborhood that they live in. And I just <laughs> right. thought that made for an, it made for an interesting parallel 
with PG to have, have these two characters that seem polar opposite, essentially be the same character, just two versions of the same personality where they're just so, just so enamored with themselves and so confident in themselves and have so little regard for other people's well-being, and just seeing like the effect that has on people around them and and then seeing them both kind of simultaneously like i don't want to say like learn a lesson from all of it because i don't really feel like anybody learns a lesson in this movie but like i feel like they do grow they grow a little bit like mimi grows to appreciate her brother and pg grows to appreciate mimi and the hallenbecks to a certain extent and so yeah i felt like that just made for a more interesting character dynamic if the kids actually felt more like real kids and that they're totally nuts. So yeah, that's, that's where that character came from. Yeah. As a mom of four kids, it's a very accurate depiction <laughs> of children and their relationship and how yeah, it's crazy. crazy they can be. Cause we have a couple <laughs> memes out of the four. Yeah. We got four. Yeah. A couple of them are, but I remember we were, when we were watching it, Lauren looked at me, she said, whoever wrote this must have kids because this is legit the dynamic between brother and sister like it's, it's it feels real even between the parents yeah well yeah i just feel like it's a relationship i've never really seen represented like i always feel like kids like the the bullying in movies always feels so temporary and like like just a thing that happens in a moment that fades away whereas mm-hmm. i wanted this to feel like like a full on ab- abusive sibling relationship where like like Mimi is dominant over Luke and Luke is just a doormat because, and that's also a personality I I don't see represented properly. I think in movies, it's like a kid that just has another kid, like basically walk all over them the whole time and like kind of seeing them overcome that is, is fun and interesting. And yeah, it's like seeing kids that are flawed. Like Mimi is not a nice kid. She's like a great, interesting character, but like, she is super mean to Luke and Luke is kind of enabling her at the same time. I think like it's, it's a tough relationship that uh, I thought just made for more interesting drama in the movie, as opposed to them just being kind of wide eyed innocence the whole time, you know, like I just felt like it was more, more compelling storytelling and more true to life. I have to ask, is crazy ball a real thing or did you make that game up? Oh, I totally made it up, but it is inspired <laughs> by I'm a big fan of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of that in this movie. I grew up with Calvin and Hobbes and it was a big influence on me growing up. And so in Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin plays a game called Calvin Ball, where it's his nonsense game that he plays. So I wanted to have a game like that, that only the kids understood because I felt like it was a good visual representation of what being a kid is like, where kids in the moment understand what they're doing and they know the rules of the universe that they built for themselves. But you step outside of that as an adult and look in and you're like, I have no idea what's going on right now. Like these kids, I don't understand anything that they're doing. So I felt like it was a fun way to show kids being kids from their perspective and also from the adult perspective. And also it was just a fun punchline to the movie as well, because I've always wanted to build to a climax where a bunch of characters have to play a game that they don't understand. I don't know why that's a thing thing I'm hooked on. I just, I just love because, you know, growing up, I loved like big epic climaxes with huge fights and like, just like lots of spectacle. And 
as I grow older, I realize like more and more like how hollow that stuff ends up being like, it can be spectacular and done really well, but like, I thought it would be more satisfying to show ultimately how pointless these climax set pieces are by having them play a game that makes absolutely no sense because that's really what like, like that's the same as like an ending, like gunfight in a movie. Like it, it, you still end up in the same place. It's just a bunch of nonsense that leads you to it. So I thought, well, why not just have them throw dodgeballs at each other and be very confused by it. So yeah, it was, I was just going to ask, did you write uh, Frig Off? Is that an original crea- musical creation? Well, that song was written by Blitz Berlin. The oh, who scored it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. They actually pitched like they, they came up with those lyrics and they pitched it to me because I told them I was like, there needs in the script. It just says like Mimi sings a song <laughs> and like everybody jams with it. And then at the end, I'm like, she sings a sad version of the song from the montage. And so they came up with this song, Frig Off, and they came up with the lyrics and everything. So that's that's all Blitz Berlin. It's the and best. if you're wondering, yes, yeah. yes, the soundtrack will be coming out. I don't have an exact drop date for it, but uh, they are working on putting together a vinyl for it. So that will be coming out. Uh, at some point. Oh, so. that's the best. Uh, and I mean, one thing awesome. you do, you got that end credit song singing about the movie that I've heard a handful of times, like Dragnet, I remember, did it. Monster Squad. There's a couple movies that have done it and you managed to pull it off and it's brilliant. Well, it's based off a very specific memory I have of seeing the 2005 remake of Assault on Precinct 13, which ends with a rap song about not just about the movie, but it like name drops the actors yeah. in the movie. Like it, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, Lawrence Fishburne. Right. No so, way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As like, I need to end the movie with something like that. I need to end on the highest note possible, which is a rap song about the movie. So, <laughs> a self-referential rap song. I love it. That's what, that's what uh, Blitz Berlin came up with. And I think it's, it's honestly like one of my favorite parts of the movie. I love it so much. And yes, I will be making a, a video for it at some point because it's too good. It, it deserves yeah. its own music video. Hell yeah. Yeah, I just want to go back uh, for a quick second here in regards to the PG creature uh, practical effects costume. There are some hilarious scenes where he's dressed up in clothes, and then, of course, we get Zombie Cop. And uh, <laughs> were there any particular scenes that didn't make the final cut due to costume limitations or issues? I mean, there was one sequence that we joked about on set that we really wanted to do, and I'll save for whatever future iterations of PG are realized down the road. But I really wanted Mimi to give PG like a, a full makeover, like in terms of like redoing his face for him. Like I basically wanted Mimi giving him plastic surgery to try and make him look human, but ended up just making him look more nightmarish. Like basically like imagine PG, but with like a flesh toned face and like really red <laughs> lips and like maybe hair or something. Like I just, I thought it'd be such a nightmare image to have her be like, I'm going to make you look pretty so we can go out on the town and just have him look like a total like freak show. I thought would be super awesome, but there was just no way to do that in the time that we had. So it'll pop up at some point because I still think it's a super funny idea that she would give him a makeover like that. (laughs) Well, before we let you go, we just wanted to ask a couple quick questions about the future or what you can tell us about it anyway. So you're working on day of the dead. What is the latest with that? And can you talk a bit, a little bit about how it ties to the original? 
Well, I actually wrapped up working on that back in December. I ended up shooting the first four episodes of the show. It's a, so it's a 10 episode series. It does have ties to the original movie. I can't go into too many specifics, unfortunately, like they're still deep in the thick of it right now. So I'm not really uh, allowed to say much of anything other than it was a very scrappy, low budget affair. And I had a ton of fun making it and we got master's effects to once again, provide creature effects for it. So I can say that at the very least the zombies are super awesome. And uh, I think it's, it's a very weird, interesting show that uh, I don't think is what people are going to be expecting. And yeah, I had a ton of fun making it and it was like really utilized all my low budget sensibilities to pull it off. It was another case of like a very ambitious premise with the bare minimum of resources. And so I think that actually yielded a lot of really good creativity from the team. It was a great, great team out in Vancouver that I shot with. And yeah, I'm excited for people to see it. It was super fun. What about uh, sequels or expansions to The Void? I feel like we won't be seeing that in the foreseeable future just because of some of the legal stuff that that movie is tied up with. I mean, Jer and I have talked about what follow-up versions would be, but uh, I think just the pure logistics of doing a follow-up is like too difficult to unravel at this time. That's not to say it'll never happen. I just don't think the immediate future is realistic for it. Gotcha. And I mean, oh, you, yeah. you annihilated your entry into the Leprechaun series with Leprechaun Returns. It was such a blast, man. Yeah. Would, would yeah. you oh, consider you. working on films in, in the Leprechaun world and continuing that? I would gladly do another one if they asked me. I had a lot of fun making that movie. It was a great learning experience for me. It was also a bit of a dream come true in terms of working on a franchise that, to be honest, I wasn't super familiar with. Like I had seen them growing up and I was a big fan of specifically Leprechaun 3. I really liked because I have vivid memories of renting that VHS back in the day, the one where he goes to Vegas. Um, (laughs) But as like a kid growing up, I would fantasize about like being handed a franchise and be like, what can you do with this? And so it was such a like fun challenge to be given this thing, especially a thing that like the previous entry into the franchise was not particularly well received. And also being told right off the bat, like, Oh, Warwick can't even be in the movie. So like it, I felt like I was being handed, like it just felt like a challenge, not like a thing that I should say no to. It was sure. like, how can, how can you make this work? How can you use your, all your skills that you've built up up to this point to like make, uh, still make a fun leprechaun movie despite all the things that you have working against you right now so i really enjoyed doing it and i would gladly do another one steven thank you i mean again thank you so much not only for yes. making this incredible film <laughs> but yes. for joining us today and spending so much <laughs> yeah. time talking about it man we yes. really appreciate it the boo crew will be right back all residents are advised to remain in their homes keeping their doors and windows securely fastened Police still offer no explanation for the series of five deaths which occurred early today. You are cordially invited on an excursion into fear. One step beyond terror with It's Alive. It's Alive. To science, a baffling enigma. To the police, a total mystery. 
to the innocent, certain death. It's not an animal! It kills like an animal. And when we find it, it'll have to be destroyed like one. It's alive. And remember, it's deadly. It's alive from Warner Brothers. In color, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a phenomenal actor and performer who's been singing, dancing, and acting since she was just three years old. In 2018, she swept the Canadian Model and Talent Convention in Toronto, winning Best Monologue, Best Commercial, Best Kids Casting, Best Dancer, Best Singer, and Child Actor of the Year. She's been a part of a Broadway musical with the Broadway Star Project, with whom she's recorded an album at time of release. She makes her feature film debut on January 22nd, starring in Steve Kostansky's insane new movie, PG, Psycho Goreman. It's already won best film at festivals like Celluloid Screams, Monster Fest, and more. And in our opinion, this actor deserves to win the horror Oscars. We are honored to welcome Nita Jose Hanna. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) Thank you you so much for joining us and congratulations on this amazing movie. You absolutely steal the show. Thank you. Did you ever dream that your very first feature film project would be something so fun and so out of control? This was even bigger than dreams. I haven't even thought that this would ever be a reality but i'm so very thankful that i got the chance to work with not only steven but owen and the matt greg susan everybody they were so amazing on set they were always there to cheer you up if you need to and you know even if it was 2 a.m they'd always be all you know up in spirit and you know all you wanted to do is sleep but then again, you weren't really tired because you were with these amazing people. And uh, it was really a dream come true. We have four kids and we have a daughter who's close to your age. She's going to be 12 on Valentine's Day. And we just started exposing her to horror. Is that something that you've been exposed to much at all? I'd say my favorite genre of movie is horror, horror and comedy, which is actually funny because the fact that this movie combines the two so amazingly is absolutely incredible i love it so much definitely i only started watching like this kinds uh, of gore and scary maybe like two years ago maybe when i was about around 11 Um, i'm 14 now i'm gonna be 14 in like a month yeah but before i'd be watching movies like this like kind of scared to watch them now i can just kind of watch them with my teddy bear holding my teddy bear but um, (laughs) no I think scary movies are so much more interesting than just plain, you know, boring, kind of boring movies. The fact, though, that he added comedy into this script is absolutely phenomenal. I find that it gives the viewers a little break from always being on their feet and on the edge of their seat waiting for what's going to happen. Sometimes you can relax and laugh a bit. I also think that works very good for the age range. I find you can watch this as a young adult, kind of my age, up to, you know, older adults. You can even find like older mature jokes in the script, in the movie. 
and um you can you know you can always just close your eyes at some parts and leave them open for others can you give us a title of one of your other favorite horror movies besides pg i've really been stuck on the purge all the purges oh wow, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i've been watching them a lot like a lot recently all of them i've watched them i have them all like downloaded on apple tv hush is a really good one very scary but very good oh and truth or dare i think it's called that's actually one of my favorites with the crazy big smiles that they have yeah, they yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how did you find out about psycho gorman and what about it at the time sounded like wow this could be something that could be so fun to do my mom actually found this. I had uh, an agent at the time. I have a different one now. His name is Ryan. He's from Characters in Toronto. He's amazing, phenomenal guy, really nice. But my mom actually found this casting call on Facebook, put my name down, and then we seen that it was Steven. And we had heard about his name before. He was pretty big, like in Toronto. And so we checked out his work. It was really high quality, really great. So we weren't too like hopeful just because this was maybe like my fourth or fifth audition that I was doing in my life being in this industry. So I ended up getting the audition and I was actually in the first rounds of audition. I only learned this like a few days ago of Mimi's and there were like hundreds of Mimi's. So then I got a call back and then I did kind of this. I did a little Zoom interview, um, you know, just to learn a bit more about myself and why I would like to play the role of Mimi. And then after that, they're like, okay, we want to see you in Toronto in person next week. And so I flew out to Toronto with just me and my mom. It's always usually my mom that brings me places. My dad, though, he supports me 100%. My entire family does, which is really great. And we flew to Toronto, met with Stephen and Shannon. They were like, okay. See you in a few weeks. Like, we'll talk again later, maybe, you know. A few weeks later, I did get an email asking if I wanted to play the role of Mimi. And I was like, yes, like, obviously, yes. But I had only been playing, you know, little roles my entire life since I was like three to five. So I was used to 25 to maybe 30, 50 pages this script was a hundred and few pages and I was in almost 85 of the pages. <laughs> right. you know? so wow. A very different take on um, my brain. My brain, it took a second. I was like, I looked at this thick bunch of paper and I was like, I have to memorize that. But the thing is, actors don't really memorize it. I just learned that the hard way after I memorized my lines, I memorized Owen's lines. I had my, you know, I had Greg's lines and uh, Susan's lines, PG's lines. I had everybody's lines and cues and they were there memorizing the script the day before. Right. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, I, I really like I'm talking. I would bring my script to school. I would finish my math homework quick. Like I had this big like binder of it and I like I always had my nose in it. I was like just reading and my teacher at that time was super supportive. Uh, she's like one of my favorite teachers. And so she'd let me like finish my work and do that, thankfully. But I was like stressing out hardcore that I, I you know, I wasn't going to be able to memorize my lines and that they think I, I wasn't a, a real actor. And this was my first film. So I, I kind of had to prove myself to a certain point. But I got on set and I was like, oh my God, like it was even greater than I could have ever imagined. 
a big thing is in musical theater, you get one chance and one chance only. And in film, you have to do it a few times or else, you know, what if you what if you lose that? What if you lose this? What if this file goes corrupt? So you have to do it a few times. And sometimes I'd be like, that was perfect on the first try. Like, really, it was perfect. You're not going to get any better. But we always, you know, you have to have backups and backups to the backups. But it was definitely a different vibe than musical theater, for sure. Did you guys stick to the script or did they let you improvise at all? Stephen let us improvise a lot, like a lot, a lot. There's one scene where me and my brother, we had dug up a hole and my mother had found it the next day. And that scene, you can kind of tell, but it's a lot of improv, like the majority of it, I'd say. And I'm very thankful that he let us do that because I find it comes off a lot more natural and it just sounds like we're arguing as a real family. And I think that adds a lot of character to the film. Oh, definitely. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a little brother. He's seven years old. And then I have an older brother and he's 17 years old and I'm 13. So there's like a three age gap with my older brother and like a six year gap with my younger brother. I'm about to be 14 in a month. So I think working with Luke, that definitely helped that I had siblings. He also has an older sister. So he kind of knew how it was, but I don't think he let his older sister boss him around as much as (laughs) (laughs) was there anything you did in particular to kind of get ready to figure out who Mimi was and to add those characteristics, like flipping your hair around and doing all the things that make Mimi Mimi. So after a while, Mimi was not Mimi. Mimi was Nita and Nita was Mimi. We were one. I couldn't turn Mimi off. I was always in character somehow. But Steven did let me add a lot of personal little touches on Mimi, which I think is great. And it really showed through, I find, in me playing Mimi. You can really tell that I'm not so much really acting. It's very natural. And I find that what makes a movie a good movie and an actor a great actor that you can connect with your character in any which way and so sometimes you know i can be a little sassy sometimes you know i i like to have my way and mimi does too so i find as a character we bonded very well what was the most challenging scene in psycho gorman for you to shoot this is very easy In the film, you could tell that I'm very high energetic, always on my feet, you know, ready. I have great comebacks. I always know what to say and when to say it. So the hardest, I'd say, scene to film, there's a scene that I get serious with my father. And he's, you know, saying he's basically teaching me a life lesson, even though that's not really a life lesson. If you really listen to what he's saying, (laughs) you know, I always like. Add Mimi into that scene and Steve would be like, no, like you have to be serious and heartfelt. And I'm like, I haven't heard that word in so long. I, I don't even know what it means. So turning that Mimi switch off like that was very hard for me. The speech didn't help at all because uh, the thing that I wanted to do Your reaction that. is what makes it so funny though, right? That's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is the whole bit. 
So I was like trying to be as serious as possible, but man, it, it was hard. <laughs> what did you think about getting the chance to do something that very few actors get a chance to do? And that's interact with people wearing creature suits and all these incredibly gory effects happening right in front of you. A lot of the times where you did see those gory effects, I actually wasn't there. They did keep in mind that I'm just a little girl and, you know, sometimes you don't want to see that in real person. But I really didn't think at that time that I was a little girl. I thought that I was grown already. And so I would sneak onto set and be like, no, I'm here now. You, like, you can't get me off. <laughs> and so I actually enjoy seeing those things because it's pretty interesting. It's not something you, a lot of people get to see. And it's not something you get to see sometimes even more than once. I remember each day before we started filming the AD, Scott, he would, you know, bring everybody around in the circle and talk about what we were going to do today, what we're going to accomplish or what we're going to try to accomplish. And at the end of the day, he'd be like, isn't it so cool that we get to go to work with monsters? And it's true. Like, it was really cool to go. Uh, I don't really call it work because I, I really like it, but it was cool to go basically to this place every day and work with monsters, especially with PG. He was so nice. Um, Matthew, he was the greatest. He has kids of his own. Um, so he, he knew he wasn't like snotty to me. when he was super, super nice and knew how to, you know, treat little children. And that sometimes we're going to be a little annoying. We're going to want something that is not going our way and he always knew how to keep us like in great spirit and keep himself in great spirit because that suit that suit it's so hot in there you can't really eat you can't really drink because you can't go to the bathroom and these things i'm talking like his face it's glued onto his face like i remember his back was like hives it was hives you would stick on this thing every day take it off a few hours of sleep put it back on after eight hours, rip it back off. And it just, it kept on going in a cycle. And I couldn't imagine doing that. Honestly, I don't know how he did it. Like I, I felt so bad for the guy. It was like, we were there freezing cause it was always either raining or freezing cold. And he was there like, Oh my God, it's, it's so hot. Can someone like get me a fan or something? And we'd be like, our lips were turning blue. This big, pillow basically he's in this big memory foam so i can imagine how you know uncomfortable that can be what did you think when you finally got to see the finished product with the voice of pg coming to life in the way it does it's so deep and it's got the sound effects on it and being able to see the different effects and the things lighting up that weren't lighting up probably when you were filming what was that experience like i was kind of upset i've got to say that they didn't use matt's voice I wish someone would have filmed his voice or that he would have been mic'd up because Matt would put on this PG voice. It was the funniest thing ever. And he didn't need to. He didn't need to. Like, he probably ruined his voice for nothing. Like, he would talk like this. And it, it helped get you in character. But, man, oh, man, that was a waste of energy. <laughs> like, he wasting enough energy, like, standing up and trying not to fall down. It was so funny. And at the end of it, when we found out that it wasn't going to be his voice, me and Owen were pretty upset. But watching the film back with all the, you know, the new ADR and things that weren't really clear and the special effects, it's really cool. Even there's a part I know where Owen spins around. Obviously on set, he wasn't there flying around in the air. I think he was on a box, like just spinning around slowly. And it was like, don't fall off the box. To see all the special effects, it's really cool and to know that like i'm 
in the film. It's even cooler. I, I love it. The scene where they shot in the in the woods where you're confronted by all PG's old buddies from Gygax and we see all these crazy creatures. Did they film that with you there? Were you able to interact with those creatures and see them right there? I did. I actually have a picture. I'll have to find it somewhere. I have a picture and it's like with all of them. I'm like all of them. And I know I'm like, they're like saying like this. (laughs) And then this one guy has his sword like on my neck. I'm talking like this thing, just this big bar. And I'm like, <laughs> Can I leave now? Yeah. <laughs> but the people in those suits were actually really nice. They were really cool. Like I got to like see a few stunts like in person and they're like amazing. But it did start it was raining in that scene. Oh no. It was a very big fight. But it was raining and my hair was getting wet and our wardrobe was getting wet. So we had to unfortunately walk back to like base but no it was very fun and i did get to see there's a part where there's this one character that shoots his like power i guess is shooting out blood it was so cool to see in person and actually pg or matt he was like oh this is so great because you have these soaking wet cold like rags basically on you at this point and we'd be like are you cold and he'd be like, no, no, this, this feels great. I, I love it. <laughs> Did you have a favorite character from what all the different monsters and creatures? I've got PG. He was so cool. I mean, up to the, the contacts, his eyes were completely blacked out. His teeth, he had like retainers that made his, his teeth were all jagged. Oh, he had this, this black goo that they put in his mouth. I bet you it didn't taste good, but it looked really cool. Also, though, when you, he talked, like if he was here to you, well, he was like here to me, but um, you would have like little black spots like splashing on. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool, though, man. That feels real <laughs> at that point. Even like on his face, his arms and his body, he had these little veins. Pretty sure you can see him in the movie, but you see them even better in person. They were like almost individually filled with this like goo i mean mean, steven worked so very hard and the art department and uh, special effects oops they worked so very hard on all the costumes but especially pg i found that was totally sick it looked amazing like i'd say it looked just as good on set than it does in the movie did you keep anything from the production like that gem or any costuming did they let you keep the gem so so bad i was like for the last five days i was like so steven like you're giving me the gem right like the gem is mine and he was like yeah and then the last day came i was like (laughs) and he had to like do some extra filming with it and it was so annoying i did end up keeping um some things from my room i kept two barbie dolls when they were like memefied and they were like oh their heads were cut off I think it's at my, my house right now. We're at our cottage, but it's at my house. I have two Barbies, basically like practically zombies <laughs> and this little Barbie car. And it's like Mimi's. I don't know what it is, but there's something on the hood of the car. It's like every single detail was so meticulously put. And the last thing I have, there's a scene where PG goes to shop for normal people clothes. It's just a little montage. But there's this one part where he rips the shirt off of him and I have half of the shirt 
and Owen has the other half of the shirt. Aww. And um, yeah, so we were like, just in case this movie, you know, does really well, we have to have souvenirs. That's right. So, I'm so proud of the the movie. Honestly, it's like my little baby. I worked so very hard on it, and I know Stephen worked so very hard writing and directing it. I'm just so happy. I hope everybody likes it just as much as you know, like you guys and me and my family and friends loved it. And I think um, it's a very interesting movie. I'm very glad with the outcome for ah, sure. We were blown away by it. Leo's yes. got one more question yeah. for you before we let you go. Leo? Yeah, I was curious about that insane game of crazy ball that Mimi invented. Now, do you know all the rules? And at any time, were all the rules ever filmed in the, for the movie? You're putting me on the spot. Now, I don't actually know the rules. I explained it a few times during the, 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 the film, but they were just words that were in my brain and I didn't really get them. And I only understood that, you know, if you hit someone in the butt, you get double as much of the points. And then there's this switcheroo thing where I get to hit Owen. <laughs> but I hope one day that Steve can explain the game to me and we can all play a big game of crazy ball once all of this pandemic stuff is over. I feel like that'd be super cool, but we definitely have to film it. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> but I actually, I actually don't know the rules. I'll have to learn them one day. For the have sequel. To. For the yeah, sequel. Exactly. For the sequel. Yeah. For the sequel. And I gotta say, Frig Off has got to be the song of the year. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a blast to film. All the musical scenes and your dancing yeah, and everything. It was. I obviously knew I was going there. I knew I was going to act, but when they told me that I could sing too and dance, I was like, like hands down. Like I was so excited. I was like, I was jumping up and down and I was like, okay, get my pigtails ready. Like get my scrunchies in my hair and let me put my outfit on. We have to go right now. And it was, it was very funny. They were like, you actually sing. And I was like, yeah, I actually sing. <laughs> They were like, ding, ding. Awesome. (laughs) I remember um, there was the monitor. We we were filming it in a garage and there was a monitor outside of the garage where there was like my mom, wardrobe, makeup, but there was no sound on the monitor. So imagine watching that clip of me singing and dancing. No sound, no (laughs) sound whatsoever. Like it was, it was the funniest thing I could imagine. Like, Oh, man, it was funny. <laughs> well, Nita, thank you again so much for taking the yes. time to spend with us. We yes. absolutely love the movie, and you just killed it. Yes. It was so great. Thank you. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 193. Special thanks to our guests, Stephen Kostansky and Nita Shosehana. At time of release, see PG Psycho Gorman in select theaters, drive-ins on demand and digital January 22nd. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! 
Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.